inside the confines of a standardized curriculum box to a teaching and learning space that is more creative? And how can you make this leap in your teaching practice in an easy and more systematic way that doesn't create more work for yourself during planning sessions? This is what I'm hoping to accomplish with Get Off the Dotted Line, a podcast that gives elementary teachers simple step-by-step tools, guidance, and advice on how to make teaching more creative without sacrificing high-quality content, instruction, skills, and amazing learning potential for your students. I'm your host, Dr. Paige Hendricks, and together we will explore different ways to simplify your planning and add a lot of creative impact that is outside the confines of standardized curriculum and the dotted lines. In episode 31, we began our discussion of what is the social studies curriculum by talking about the definition of social studies and the definition of curriculum. Then in episode 32, I deviated from that direct question a bit in order to describe and define the different types of curriculum we were talking about. There are eight different types of curriculum, by the way. And all of this information only to get to our next question, which is the subject for today's podcast. Who controls the social studies curriculum? You may already know the answer or an answer to this question, who controls the social studies curriculum, because it's probably printed on the textbook you were handed to teach from or on the outside of the curriculum box that's sitting on your shelf as you're listening to this podcast. But I firmly believe it's important to go beyond the printed obvious and dig a bit deeper. Because who knows, maybe we're headed for a radical change in this sector of education in the near future, just my humble prediction. And having this information will help anyone involved in education to make the best choices we can about what we teach our students, why we're teaching that topic, and what materials will best serve that purpose. So by the end of this episode, I promise you will have a better understanding of who controls the curriculum and social studies that we teach in public schools. And maybe this information will help you determine small steps that you will take in your classroom to ensure the social studies units and lessons you are teaching will be pertinent, purposeful, accurate, and appropriate for your students. Whether you consider yourself a creative teacher or not, or just need a spark to re-energize your classroom atmosphere tomorrow, this episode will help you confidently engage your students and create an atmosphere for high-quality content, instruction, and amazing learning potential to begin. I made a big deal just now about producing episode 32 and talking about the eight types of curriculum because you can't really talk about who controls the curriculum without first knowing the different types. Curriculum is bigger than just what is printed on the page. It goes beyond standards and goals and encompasses the pedagogical practices that are present in the classroom, in schools, districts, communities, and states. Here are the eight types of curriculum again, just to be clear, and I highly encourage you also to listen to episode 32 when you have about 15 minutes because I go through each of these in more detail. Curriculum type number one, the written curriculum. Type number two, the taught curriculum. Type number three, the supported curriculum. 
Type number four, the assessed curriculum. Number five, the recommended curriculum. Number six, the hidden curriculum. Number seven, the excluded curriculum. And type number eight, the learned curriculum. So like the eight different types of curriculum, there isn't just one stakeholder involved in who controls the curriculum we teach to students in schools. There are many different stakeholders, some of which we'll discuss today. And who controls the curriculum is directly related to the different types of curriculum we've defined and explained. Yep, this part is complicated and not as simple as the single name on the curriculum box on your shelf. It goes deeper, much deeper than that. So let's unpack the idea of who controls the curriculum, especially in social studies, together. Within the written curriculum lies the more formal curriculum, and this formal curriculum is the one that is written down based upon standards, like those from the National Council for the Social Studies. Any state frameworks and or any goals, all compiled to make what is written into textbooks, teacher manuals, and tests. The published stuff that comes in the social studies box on your shelf is this formal curriculum, and where we're going to focus our efforts today. This formal curriculum is explicit. It's official. It's what is used every time social studies is taught. And it's tangible. You can see this curriculum. You can talk about it with your colleagues. And you can have your students directly learn from it. The formal social studies curriculum is influenced by four factors. Legal decisions, policy efforts by governments, professional organizations and foundations, and published materials. Picture each of these factors in their own concentric circle with social studies curriculum at the center. Not many teachers consider each of these factors in their day-to-day lesson plans, but maybe this podcast will show you why you may want to have one or more of these factors in the back of your mind. These factors may be especially prudent if you're feeling like the formal social studies curriculum that your school has adopted isn't really working for you or your students, and you're thinking about proposing a change. I believe that if you want to make a change in curricular efforts, whatever they may be and in whatever subject area it may be, you'll need to put together an action plan for why you want the change. In order to do that, you'll have to present what is and isn't working in your classroom, in your grade level, in your school, and be able to link this local information to the four factors we're discussing today, because big impact equals big change. So these legal, policy, and professional entities are where the impact needs to hit in order to produce the change, and these four factors are the ultimate drivers on the curriculum road to anywhere. And now let's get to talking about these four factors, shall we? Factor number one, legal decisions. More often than not, we hear about U.S. legal cases in general because of how they impact the majority of individuals in the United States. These cases also often come from larger states, probably just because there are more people living in a larger state to begin with. One example of a prominent legal case involving educational practice and social studies, though, comes from Texas. Texas is a pretty large state. And in August of 2022, the Texas State Board of Education revised its social studies curriculum, a process that this state undertakes every 10 years or so, and residents including Texas Supreme Court Chief Justice Nathan Hake weighed in on 
Proposing Draft Changes Hake wanted to see more civics education for Texas public school students, so discussions of a revised curriculum focused on increasing civics education for all Texas public school students. It should also be noted that this particular curriculum review in Texas followed on the heels of a 2021 passage of Senate Bill 3, another legal decision. So here's a prime example of how a very large state proposed a big curricular revision for a large population of students and how it got everyone's attention. So you see, legal decisions about educational and curricular practice happened often, probably more often than we know about, mostly because they're localized to our school districts and communities and don't make national news, like this Texas example. Nevertheless, the local legal decisions happening every day in America are equally important to the conversation about social studies curriculum. These legal decisions are also the result of, in part, to the individuals elected and or appointed by higher-up government officials or individuals. Because change in personnel changes regulations and laws, it's up to us to learn and review fairly often what is happening legally in our area in regards to the social studies curriculum, or any curriculum for that matter. Being in touch with your local school district board can be a great way to stay in touch with what is happening in your area from a legal perspective. So maybe a school board meeting is in your future. Factor number two, policy efforts by governments. Policy efforts regarding social studies education in the United States dates back to 1839 and Henry Bernard's first annual report as the Secretary of the Board of Commissioners of Common Schools in Connecticut. By 1916, the NEA Committee on the Social Studies, that's the National Education Association Committee on the Social Studies, as well as other related committees, made recommendations about the topics and courses that should be included in social studies curriculum and instruction for all of the United States. It should be noted that in 1916, many students completed only elementary or junior high school at that time, so social studies in the form of U.S. history class was only offered in grades 5, 8, and 11. Many of the social studies topics and their correlating grade levels discussed in the 1916 report should sound familiar. They are, in kindergarten, we talk about self, school, community, and home. In first grade, it's about families. In second grade, neighbors. In third grade, communities. In fourth grade, we discuss state history and geographic regions. In fifth grade, United States history. In sixth grade, world cultures and Western hemisphere are on the ticket. In seventh grade, it's world geography or world history. In eighth grade, U.S. history again. In ninth grade, civics or world cultures. In 10th grade, world history in 11th grade, another douse of United States history, and in 12th grade, it's all about American government. In addition to these topics, or sometimes in lieu of, different states have produced other curricular frameworks based upon mandated standardized tests the students in those states take. For example, middle and high school students in New York State take the Regents' examinations, which are 10 exams each June. I do realize, however, that at the time of this podcast, the regions are up for continued debate and are optional based upon your own school or school district. But this is the oldest example of mandated standardized tests influencing curriculum that I know of. 
So even so, the state of New York has directed much of its curriculum and curricular frameworks taught at each grade level toward these standardized exams, i.e. teaching to the test. These identified standardized tests layered on top of an already existing curriculum has an impact on the control of knowledge and what knowledge is deemed worthy and the alignment between frameworks, standardized tests, textbooks, and materials. How could it not? Now the policy regarding the curriculum taught every day is directly related to a student's score on a standardized exam that often factors into the continued academic success or failure of that student. So any debate about what curriculum a particular school is using and why they are using it, i.e. local control, is definitely a policy issue. And these policy issues fluctuate often as local school board members and others at the local and state level change. So again, be aware of what is happening locally in your area, and staying on top of this may help you impact educational policy directly related to the good of your students. Factor number three, professional organizations and foundations. Much of the push, especially in the area of social studies by professional organizations and foundations to influence the curriculum has come from centralized efforts to transform the formal social studies curriculum through the standards movement. Even before the 2010 Common Core State Standards Initiative, many educational organizations and foundations have sought to centralize curriculum by creating matching curricular standards. After the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, or NCTM, in 1989, 91, and 95, because there were three sets published, had such a great success in promoting mathematical standards, Social Studies educators followed suit. The National Council for the Social Studies, or NCSS, created Social Studies standards in 1994 and then followed up these standards with an additional C3 framework in 2010. C3, by the way, stands for College, Career, and Civic Life. Both the Social Studies standards and the C3 framework do an excellent job of dictating what social studies instruction should be taught and learned in all public schools in grades K-12 through nationally. So if your school or state has not created social studies standards, I highly encourage you to always look nationally. For social studies, your national link is the NCSS, and that link is in the show notes. With a national take on curriculum standards, the curriculum movement has attempted to define curricular goals, design assessment tasks based upon these goals, set standards for the content subject matter areas and grade levels, and tested students and reported the results to the public. The result established standards for content as well as student performance levels based upon that content. The result Establish standards for content as well as student performance levels based upon that content. This is a good thing, and we should applaud the efforts of NCSS, NCTM, and other organizations and foundations for their efforts. And factor number four, published materials. When we think of published materials, we often think about textbooks. Did you know that in 1979, 90% of what students were learning and instructional time in schools was due to what was printed in and the use of the textbook? I'm not certain what this percentage is in 2022, but my guess is that it's less now than in 1979, probably much less. 
This shift is because teachers engage in different methods of teaching now. We don't teach directly from a textbook anymore. We have other methods because we know that teaching only using a textbook doesn't always resonate with all of our students. So we know better and we do better. And our curricular kits now come with more than just textbooks for that very reason. Many states, however, still go through a formal adoption of a textbook for a variety of subject areas, and to no surprise, California, Florida, and Texas, as the largest states, have the market on adoption influence for the remainder of the country. The textbook industry is highly competitive and is dominated by a small number of corporations. According to Business Insider, almost 80% of the textbook industry is dominated by five publishing companies, and they are... Pearson Education, Scholastic, McGraw-Hill Education, Cengage Learning, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. These companies often modify their textbooks to fit the needs of the major states, i.e. California, Florida, and Texas, so that one or more of these states will adopt their product. A definite product sale and revenue generating win for the textbook company is a win also from the state pit. As a result of the massive state adoption, the values and policies of the adopted states can also influence national curriculum topics and content. Further, influence also comes from the dominant socioeconomic class in these states who makes these adoption decisions. In short, whether or not you're located in large states like California, Florida, or Texas, read your textbooks carefully. There have been multiple legal cases brought forth against inaccurate, offensive, and incomplete views of United States history found in past social studies textbooks. You may even know of or have been involved in some of these cases. Just because a textbook company has printed social studies content and it has gone through extensive editing and revising processes, we should not assume one record completes the entire story. I learned in statistics class during my doctorate program that a study with an N of 1 isn't really much of a study at all. So please don't delay in reporting textbook information to your school administration if it is indeed incorrect, inaccurate, or offensive. So there you have it, four factors that play a part in controlling the social studies curriculum in the United States. Again, they are, number one, legal decisions, number two, policy efforts by governments, number three, professional organizations and foundations, and number four, published materials. All four of these factors are take part in answering the question about who controls the curriculum and especially who controls the social studies curriculum in the United States. Whether you consider yourself a creative teacher or not, or just need a spark to re-energize your classroom atmosphere tomorrow, I hope our discussion today of the four factors that influence the curriculum will help you confidently engage your students and create an atmosphere for high-quality content, instruction, and amazing learning potential to begin. Before we part, this section of the podcast called Cut That Out is one I do every time. Here I'll give you access to a handout so you can remember the four factors that influence the curriculum to help you think about, plan, and consider in your classroom. You can find the handout on my website at pagehendricks.com. That's P-A-I-G-E hendricks.com along with today's show notes.
Thank you so much for joining me this week. To review key takeaways from today's episode and get the free handout, please visit my website at pagehendricks.com. That's P-A-I-G-E Hendricks.com. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and want to listen to more. Please subscribe to Get Off the Dotted Line. I can't wait to share another podcast with you. Thank you again for joining me, Dr. Paige Hendricks, in today's episode of Get Off the Dotted Line. See you next time.